Welcome back to Roshcast for episode 33. This episode marks exactly one year from our launch. Yeah, exactly 365 days ago, we released the very first episode of Roshcast. Thanks to the support of you, our loyal listeners, we've grown tremendously. Of course, we also owe a huge thanks to the entire Rosh Review team. We couldn't be more excited for where Roshcast has been or where it's going. Just a few months ago, we ran a trauma ringtone contest with a subscription giveaway. We're going to do another one in honor of hitting one year. From episodes 34 to 38, listen up for a trauma ringtone. Send us the exact time by email to roshcast at roshreview.com or tweet the time to us at at roshcast. And if you have any other ideas for a contest you want us to run, email or tweet that to us too. We're open to anything. A few episodes ago, we also announced our ongoing collaboration with the EM Clerkship Podcast. We've received a ton of positive feedback and we're going to do another corollary episode this week. For today's episode, we're going to focus on bradycardia. Zach covers bradycardia in depth on his episode released this past Sunday. As always, you can listen in any order. Learn first and test yourself later, or give yourself a Roshcast pretest, and then head over to the EM Clerkship podcast to brush up. Lots of announcements, but it's time to get this show on the road. Let's get started with some new material in a rapid review. Let's talk about vitamin deficiencies, which were recently covered on the Rosh Review blog. Which vitamin deficiency is associated with rickets in children and osteomalacia in adults? That would be vitamin D deficiency. Vitamin D deficiency is associated more with the elderly, insufficient sun exposure, malnutrition, malabsorption, breastfeeding infants, and anticonvulsant users. And how about vitamin E deficiency? How does that usually present? Vitamin E deficiency can present with areflexia, peripheral neuropathy, gait abnormalities, ophthalmoplegia, or decreased proprioception. And vitamin A, what's the presentation there? The classic association would be with vitamin A deficiency and night blindness. You can get xerosis, which is dryness of the eyes, mucous membranes, and conjunctiva, and bateau spots, which are white patches on the conjunctiva as well. A lot of high-yield review there. Along with vitamin K, don't forget that these make up the fat-soluble vitamins. Great review. A, D, E, and K, the fat-soluble vitamins. Let's dive right into the bradycardias with today's new material. A 66-year-old woman presents with generalized weakness and dyspnea on exertion for the last two weeks. Her vitals are a BP of 80 over 45, a heart rate of 40, respiratory rate of 16 with a pulse ox of 97%. Her EKG, which we have up on the blog, shows a sinus rhythm. However, some of the P waves are not followed by QRS complexes, seemingly in a random pattern. There are no ST segment abnormalities. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? Is it A, administer aspirin, heparin, and admit for acute coronary syndrome? Is it B, cardiac catheterization laboratory activation? C, observation and arrange for cardiology follow-up? Or D, place a transcutaneous pacemaker? Occasional dropped QRS complexes without a particular pattern. It sounds like they're describing second-degree AV block type 2. This patient needs a pacer, and she's hemodynamically unstable. The correct answer here would be choice D, place a transcutaneous pacer. Transcutaneous pacer or even a transvenous pacer would be appropriate here. Why don't you run through the three degrees of AV block for us? In first degree AV block, the PR interval is prolonged, greater than 200 milliseconds. For second degree AV block, you have two types. There's type 1, or Wenckebeck, also called Mobitz 1. In this one, there's progressive lengthening of the PR interval with an eventual non-conducted P wave. In second degree type 2, or Mobitz 2 AV block, which this patient has, There are occasional non-conducted P waves without preceding lengthening of the PR interval. And lastly, in third-degree AV block or complete heart block, 
The atria and ventricles beat independently, so you can march out the P waves and QRS complexes separately since there's complete dissociation. And how is each type of AV block treated? Well, that's the critical question here. First degree and MOBITS 1 AV block do not require treatment. In contrast, MOBITS 2 and third degree AV block require a pacemaker, even if the patient is asymptomatic. And if they are symptomatic like this patient, you need a transcutaneous or emergent transvenous pacer. Right, and not only was this patient symptomatic with dyspnea and generalized weakness, but she was also hypotensive and therefore hemodynamically unstable. Definitely not the time for choice C, outpatient follow-up. And I should mention, although MOBITS 2 can be caused by ischemia, in the case of a bradycardic hypotensive patient, the first intervention needs to address hemodynamic stability. An ischemic evaluation will likely be warranted and aspirin and heparin choice A may need to be given, but hemodynamic management always comes first. And similarly, choice B, a cardiac cath, this patient may have a lesion that's in need of some stenting, but acute PCI simply isn't the first step here. Let's move on to the next bradycardia question. A patient presents profoundly altered. His EKG shows a sinus bradycardia at about 50 with Osborne waves in the precordial leads and anterior lateral and inferior ST depressions. Which of the following is likely to be present on exam? Is it A, a harsh crescendo-decrescendo systolic murmur? B, a swollen and tender right lower leg? C, decreased core body temperature? Or D, elevated jugular venous distension? Tough question without looking right at the EKG, so definitely check out the image on the blog. But given that this patient is bradycardic with Osborne waves, I'm guessing we have a hypothermic patient, so I'll go with choice C, decreased core body temperature. That's exactly what this question was getting at. Osborne waves, also called late delta waves or J waves, are positive deflections at the J point which are characteristic of hypothermia. They're usually seen only at core temperatures below 32 degrees Celsius. In terms of cardiac effects of hypothermia, as the core temperature begins to drop, so too do the heart rate and cardiac output. Then, as the body cools down even more, you may see other associated arrhythmias, including AFib, ventricular fibrillation, and even asystole. I think it would be worth also diving a bit deeper into hypothermia with this question. What effects are seen with mild, moderate, and severe hypothermia? Alright, so with mild hypothermia, that occurs with temperatures of about 32 to 35 degrees Celsius, you'll see shivering and drowsiness. With moderate hypothermia, which occurs between about 28 to 32 degrees Celsius, you'll note a loss of the shivering and progressive confusion and lethargy. It's at this point you would also see the slowing of the heart rate and cardiac output that I just mentioned. And lastly, with severe hypothermia, and that occurs at about 28 degrees or lower, patients tend to be comatose with marked cardiopulmonary dysfunction, culminating ultimately, as I just said, in asystole. Nice review. So now that you've diagnosed the patient with hypothermia, and perhaps graded it as mild, moderate, or severe, how should we rewarm this patient? Well, of course, you'll have to let the patient's degree of hypothermia guide your resuscitation. Mild hypothermia can be treated passively with blankets and warm ambient air. In cases of moderate to severe hypothermia, you'll likely need to employ both active external and internal warming techniques. Active external techniques include electric blankets and forced air blankets. Active internal warming techniques include warmed IV fluids, warmed humidified air, gastric lavage, bladder lavage, peritoneal lavage, pleural lavage, or even cardiopulmonary bypass in the most severe cases. Hmm, some of those last methods are pretty invasive. Let's do a random question next. From hypothermia to infectious disease, you gotta love the ED. Which of the following organisms is associated with bullous meringitis in the setting of pneumonia? Is it A, Bordetella pertussis, B, Haemophilus influenza, C, Streptococcus bovis, or D, Streptococcus pneumonia? 
pneumonia with bullous myringitis. The correct answer here has to be choice D, strep pneumo. And if you weren't sure, you might have guessed this by choosing the most common cause of community-acquired pneumonia in adults and playing the odds. Great point. In bullous myringitis, you would expect to see fluid-filled vesicles on the eardrum, and the patient may complain of otalgia as well as a cough and fever. Don't worry about specific ear therapies, as treating the pneumonia should also resolve any ear problems the patient has. And let's quickly review the other bugs before going back to cardiology for the next question. Choice A, pertussis, that causes whooping cough. Choice B, H flu, that causes pneumonia, but it's not associated with bullous myringitis. And lastly, choice C, strep bovis, that's associated with endocarditis and colorectal cancer, but again, not bullous myringitis. Okay, back to bradycardia for the next one. A 52-year-old man presents from his primary care physician's office for evaluation of an abnormal EKG. The EKG shows a gradually lengthening PR interval with eventual dropped QRS complexes. The patient is asymptomatic. What is the appropriate intervention? Is it A, measurement of cardiac enzymes, B, no intervention, C, telemetry observation, or D, transcutaneous pacer pad placement? Progressive lengthening of the PR interval with eventual drop beats. We just went over this. This is type 1 second degree AV block. And as we stated earlier, this doesn't require any treatment. So the answer here has to be choice B, no intervention. Wow, how's that for spaced repetition? Progressive lengthening of the PR interval until a QRS complex has dropped, that's describing type 1 second degree AV block, also known as Wenckeback or Mobitz 1. As this is likely a normal variant, no treatment is required. You are absolutely right with your answer. In addition to being a normal variant, it may also be related to increased vagal tone, which would require no treatment as well. I'll run through the other answer choices here. Choice A, cardiac enzymes. Those are needed to rule out ischemia. Choice C, telemetry observation. That's needed in cases of unclear arrhythmias or syncope, which isn't the case here. And lastly, choice D, placing pacer pads. As we stated earlier, that's for patients with second-degree type 2 or third-degree AV block. For the next question, we're moving from a medical recess to a trauma recess. Well, kind of. Anyway, a high school football player presents with terrible knee pain after being tackled awkwardly. The x-ray reveals a Sagan fracture. A Sagan fracture is pathognomonic for what ligamentous injury? Is it A, the ACL, B, the LCL, C, the MCL, or D, the PCL? This is a term you just need to know. A Sagan fracture is pathognomonic for choice A, an ACL injury. Exactly. A Sagan fracture is an avulsion injury of the lateral tibial plateau. Definitely check out the image on the blog for this one. In such cases, plain radiographs usually show an oval-shaped fragment adjacent to the lateral plateau. Of course, examining the patient will make the often suggested, quote, correlate clinically much easier to identify the lesion. Speaking of which, what exam finding is often seen in patients with ACL tears? ACL injuries are associated with anterior lateral and rotational instability. And what two tests do we employ to test this instability? Well, we can turn to either the Lachman or anterior drawer test. And which of those is more sensitive? The Lachman test, which tests instability with anterior stress in 15 to 30 degrees of flexion, is the most sensitive physical exam test for ACL injury. While treating his knee, you look down and note that his infant brother is cyanotic. His mom notes that he's had these episodes of cyanosis and respiratory difficulty, which has been previously diagnosed as Tetralogy of Fallot. Which of the following defects would you expect to see on his echocardiograph examination? Is it A, aortic and pulmonary artery transposition, B, atrial septal defect, C, left ventricular hypertrophy, or D, overriding aorta? 
So this question is essentially asking, what are the cardiac abnormalities in an infant with Tetralogy of Fallot? The answer here, which you can remember with the proved mnemonic, is choice D, an overriding aorta. In the proved mnemonic, P is for pulmonary stenosis, R is for RV hypertrophy, O is for the overriding aorta, and V is for VSD. Tetralogy of Fallot is a congenital heart disease with the four characteristic defects you just described. It's the most common cyanotic congenital heart disease. Children often present with the classic, quote, TET spells, which are marked by cyanosis, hyperpnea, and irritability, accompanied by a decrease in murmur intensity. Children learn to improve their own hemodynamics and therefore symptoms by squatting, which increases peripheral vascular resistance and improves oxygenation. It's treated with temporizing surgeries to palliate the infant until he or she is mature enough to undergo a full corrective surgery. Do you remember some of the common physical exam findings seen in infants beyond the characteristic TET spells? Well, you may see cyanosis at any time during infancy. On cardiac exam, you would likely hear a single loud S2 as well as a harsh systolic murmur due to the pulmonary stenosis. Exactly. And on chest x-ray, you would expect a boot-shaped heart due to the underlying changes you outlined before. Let's end with one last bradycardia question. A 50-year-old woman presents to the ED with minor chest pain. She has a history of hypertension and is taking metoprolol. In the ED, her vital signs show a blood pressure of 120 over 80, heart rate of 48, respiratory rate of 14, and an oxygen saturation of 99% on room air. Her rhythm strip shows progressive PR lengthening until a QRS is dropped. Which type of AV block is she suffering from? Is it A, first-degree heart block, B, type 1, second-degree heart block, C, type 2, second-degree heart block, or D, third-degree heart block? Spaced repetition at its finest. A progressively lengthening PR interval until a dropped QRS is definitely choice B, type 1, second-degree AV block, or MOBITS-1. One thing to note here is that this patient is on a beta blocker. Agents that slow conduction through the AV node, like adenosine, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and digoxin, can all be responsible for causing any type of heart block. Excellent point. Let's close out this episode with a rapid review for even more spaced repetition. First-degree heart block is defined as a prolonged PR interval greater than 200 milliseconds. Second-degree type 1 AV block, also known as MOBITS-1 or Wankybach, is defined as a progressively lengthening PR interval until a QRS is skipped. Second-degree type 2 AV block, also known as MOBITS-2, is marked by random non-conducted QRS complexes. In third-degree heart block or complete heart block, the atrium ventricles beat independently. First and second-degree type 1 heart block require no intervention. Second-degree type 2 and complete heart block require a pacemaker. If symptomatic or hemodynamically unstable, they require immediate transcutaneous or transvenous pacing until a permanent pacer can be placed. Osborne waves, also known as late delta waves or J-waves, are positive deflections of the J-point that are characteristic of hypothermia and are usually only seen at temperatures below 32 degrees Celsius. Definitely check out an image of an Osborne wave since it's pretty unforgettable. Concurrent bolus meringitis and pneumonia is associated with strep pneumonia. Treating the pneumonia will also address the otalgia. Second-degree type 1 AV block may be related to increased vagal tone or medications that block the AV node. Medications that block the AV node include adenosine, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and digoxin. A second fracture is pathognomonic for an ACL injury. To test for an ACL injury, perform either the Lachman test or the anterior drawer test. The Lachman test is more sensitive than the anterior drawer test. Remember the proved mnemonic for the cardiac defects seen in Tetralogy of Fallot. 
P is for pulmonary stenosis, R is for RV hypertrophy, O is for overriding aorta, and V is for VSD. And that concludes the new content for Roshcast episode 33. Hopefully we'll have the opportunity to meet a few of you at ASAP in two weeks. We'll be around the presentation halls and the exhibitor booths, so feel free to stop us, say hi, and give us any feedback you've been dying to share. Be sure to also check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. There are tons of other great free resources there to help you prepare for the boards and the wards. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast and at RoshReview. And you can always email us at Roshcast at with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. You can also help us pick questions by identifying new ones you would like us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. And lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality review.